welcome to Queers & Co, the podcast on self-empowerment, body liberation and activism for queer folks and allies. I'm your host, Jem Kennedy. I'm a transformational coach as well as creator of the Queers & Co zine and community. Hi everyone, I hope you're keeping safe and well and managing to navigate the weirdness that is going on right now. Just a reminder that if you're in need of any support, I'm still offering by donation coaching and EFT to anyone who might need it. Uh, so you can make a donation for an hour session, no matter how um, large or small the donation is. And if you're not able to give financially, then you're very welcome to um, write a testimonial or to just let a friend know at some point about my work. If you're not already a member of the Queers & Co Facebook group, then do come along and join because every Sunday I'm holding a free uh, quarantine sharing circle where you can connect with other queer folks and just share what's going on for you. It's confidential, uh, non-judgmental and non-advisory and you can ask what you would like from the group. So if you would like their thoughts on what you've shared, that's okay. Um, but no one's going to give you any any kind of opinion or anything unless you request it. So... Now to introduce this week's guest. My guest is a queer, non-binary, disabled American living in the UK. They write and produce a weekly advice column and podcast called Non-Monogamy Help and have previously been published in Violet Blue's Best Women's Erotica. My guest also writes personal essays and articles on a variety of topics on social justice issues, from gender to disability to poverty in publications like Talk Poverty, The Huffington Post, Exo Jane, Into... Pink News, Gay Star News, The Establishment, The Independent and Everyday Feminism. Essentially, they're awesome. And um, other than writing, they enjoy baking, axe throwing, how cool is that? Studying Scandinavian mythology and history and working out. I'm super excited to introduce the last guest of this series, Lola Phoenix. Hi, Lola. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. I'm really excited to have you here. Thanks for doing it. Yeah, thank you for having me on. So um, it would be really great to start with, I think I always start with this actually, I make it sound like it's a new event, invention. <laughs> um, it would be great to start with um, just finding out a bit more about you and your various intersections. Cool. Um, so yeah, my name is Lola Phoenix. I am an American immigrant that relocated to the UK and I'm going to be here for the foreseeable future unless things change and it gets a lot easier to immigrate somewhere else. Um, <laughs> I identify as queer, um, autistic, and disabled in lots of other ways. I have a very uh, rare and difficult disorder <laughs> to deal with. Um, I am also queer, and I grew up in a kind of, I would say it was mostly working class, but there were kind of weird things that made it a little bit middle class um, that, you know, because I had middle class grandparents, but um, my parents were definitely working class slash poor. So it was a lot of mix up of that. Um, yeah, I think that that definitely kind of informs my experience. I'm also a bit on the A spectrum and that has had a lot of impact in terms of, you know, how I look at things. And yeah, I think that kind of covers most of my intersections. I am, I am white, so I'm privileged in that way. And I think um, even unlike the vast majority of my family, I, I have been to university. So I have also that aspect, which has given me a lot of privilege in a lot of ways. Hmm. So yeah, that's kind of my background. 
Amazing. Thank you. And there's lots to explore there. Um, and I just wondered, first of all, for anyone listening who isn't familiar with ACE or being asexual, I wonder whether you'd be happy just to um, maybe explain a bit about what that looks like to you. Sure. So for me, I roughly identify as demisexual. Demisexual means, and this is, this is really hard for people to wrap their heads around, it means that I don't tend to be attracted to somebody without some type of emotional bond to them. And most people would say, well, that's how everyone is. But there's a difference between being willing to have sex with someone and actually being attracted to them. A lot of people will be sexually attracted to people that they don't necessarily know, that they just see, but they aren't necessarily willing to jump in the bed right away with them. But for me, I just don't feel attracted to people right away. It takes a long time for me to be sexually attracted to them. And just as an addendum, ace people, you know, the only, people have sex without being sexually attracted to people all the time. So you can still be ace and be interested in sex for other reasons that don't have to do with being sexually attracted to people. I know it's complicated and it's, it's a bit of a, a confusing thing. For me, labels are helpful when they add something to my life and when they help me understand myself a little bit better, when they help me clarify my experiences. And they're, they're easy ways to explain to people and find other people who have my experiences. But I don't think labels should ever be a prescriptive list that people should have to meet. So they're descriptive, not prescriptive. They should be things that help people. So there's sometimes when I will be like, oh, am I really demisexual? Because I try to like pick apart whether or not I'm sexually or aesthetically or romantically attracted to somebody. And at the end of the day, it's just like, this is a label that helps me say, I notice that I am different in how I feel attracted to people than the vast majority of people. And this helps me feel less alone. Yeah. And there's something in um, two things actually. So within labels I like what you say about them not being prescriptive it's just a way to identify and also to find other people like you um and within that there's a spectrum right so it's not like um mm -hmm. it's not like using these labels means that you are absolutely this all the time and mm -hmm. you know it's the same for everyone it's just a sort of identifier that means that there's a scale within um that particular idea that you might fall in fall within does that make sense yeah definitely yeah. Um, and the other thing was, yeah, about finding people or, or when you come across a label or a, um, a way to identify and it really resonates with you. Um, it's so powerful, isn't it, to realize that you're not alone anymore and that there are other people that feel like that. Um, putting words to things can be really validating, I think. Yeah, definitely. And especially kind of when you feel like you're so different from how everyone else is experiencing something and it's not to say that like their experience is invalid or that mine is more valid or anything like that it's just I think people at their core even people who are like me I'm like I'm very introverted I don't really I'm not a big social person but I don't think people you know I think we're social we're encouraged to be social you know that's how we've survived for ages and ages is by forming communities and being with one another and so I think in that aspect it's hard to feel alone and you don't want to feel alone and so if a label can help you feel like okay I'm not the only one who feels this way then that's really really important. Yeah I'm just thinking you mentioned some of the other other parts of your identity and I'm wondering what queer looks like to you so within the queer label um, it can mean all kinds of different things for different people and how how would you identify with being queer? So I think that queerness for me is more than just 
about sexuality or about gender. Mm. For me, I want that label in particular because it has a political meaning. Yeah. And I think that that's really, really important because, you know, I, I grew up with, my mom's a lesbian. And um, so I grew up kind of within the community and saw it from a different perspective. And I didn't actually come out until I was, and, and coming out's kind of a, a rough kind of thing of what I did, but I didn't realize and kind of accept myself as not being straight or at least not being typical in that regard until my mid twenties. And my mom, you know, said very biphobic things growing up. Um, and I think that came from a place of, you know, frustration for people that she thought that could choose to be oppressed or not. And she didn't understand. Um, but I think that for me, you know, queerness is not just, it's, it's, it's about realizing that society has decided to privilege others and punish others and to not, to choose not to assimilate into that. And I think that I do, I do a talk occasionally about the history of the Stonewall uprising and the history of kind of that resistance within the U.S. and there is a long history of people who want to assimilate, people who want to be quote unquote normal, people who want to be accepted by the mainstream and people who don't. And that's always been a huge tension in the community between people who just want to be quote unquote accepted. We're usually already accepted in a lot of other ways because they're white, because they're, you know, they're middle class because they fit in, in a lot of other boxes and being gay is just the, the little thing that's hanging out that they want to ha hammer down so that they can fit in. And for some people fitting in is just not an option. And I feel like for me, you know, even if I were fully accepted in being queer and, and, you know, not seeing jet for me, gender or presentation or whatever is not a factor in what I find attractive in someone or it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. So even if I were fully accepted in that, there's still lots of other ways that I'm not accepted. And there are also still a lot of other people who aren't accepted. And for me, queerness is about, I'm, I'm not going to just be okay with being, I don't want to assimilate. And that's part of a big part of the identity. I think there are a lot of gay people who aren't queer. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, I'm, I'm willing to expand the definition of queerness to, to consider things outside of sexuality and gender. The thing that I am wary about is, is when people start trying to take it as a means to gain power. And particularly within the polyamory community and within the kink community, there are very white, cisgender, heterosexual men who want to add and tack the letter onto LGBTQ as a way to say, to get out of the things that they say and the things that they do that are oppressive. Mm. So, and that isn't okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm open to, and I, I, when I started getting more into, um, into fat liberation and fat, fat activism, and I'm kind of more on the small fat spectrum in that regard. Um, when I started getting more into that, the idea of calling someone straight size, I was like, oh, actually that totally makes sense to me because mm being queer is about being on the margins and fat bodies are on the margins. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And I'm fine with that. Um, but certain things there and their acceptability, um, I think it's debatable, but if it comes down to someone taking that label and using it as a way to, as a get out of jail free card for the other stuff that they do, 
uh, yeah, I can't get on board with that. Yeah, that's super interesting because I know um, Virgie Tovar, for example, identifies mm-hmm. or has talked about identifying as queer as being a fat person, that fatness mm-hmm. is a, a queer identity. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's so interesting. I've not come across, um, just because I guess of my exposure to different communities, I've not come across uh, many straight white men who would would identify as queer or would want to use that identity. What, what's that like, seeing people trying to claim that? It's really frustrating. Um, and to be fair, it's not just men. It is sometimes women who are mm-hmm. uh, who do identify as heterosexual it's just these people arguing that polyamory or kink should be added to the lgbtq letter i don't mm. think that they push to identify as queer specifically because oh, they see. don't they don't understand that queer is a, is a political identity mm. and they would probably be more in the camp of queer is a slur um but they do want to be part of it and they make a big deal of marching in the pride parade as if they weren't wouldn't be allowed as a straight person to march in the pride parade like they make a big big deal out of being part of that community mm-hmm. and then when you call them on the sexism that they when they call them on transphobia when you call them on any of the things that they do they're like well i'm marginalized because i'm polyamorous or i'm marginalized right. because i'm kinky and it's not it's not really the same and yeah. and yeah yeah, yeah it's I frustrating can... Yeah, so it makes me think of what we were talking about before we were recording, before we started recording, the idea that um, just because you are polyamorous, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are a member of an oppressed community. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas it sounds as though people who are taking part in the pride marches and, you know, kind of really pushing the point potentially do feel like they're part of a marginalised community. I think that there's, there's a lot of variation. I'm, I mean, I'm not going to pretend like people welcome and accept the idea of polyamory easily. However, I think that, how do I say this? I think that we have to look at history and, and, and part of what makes a marginalized identity is looking at the history of the way people have been treated and how they've been targeted and how systems have been built to disenfranchise them. If you look at history, men have typically always been able to sleep with and have relationships with mostly whoever they wanted to without Mm -hmm. a lot of punishment. And even, you know, especially if they're wealthy, especially if they're in, in positions of power, mistresses have been common. There are a lot of places where, I mean, I'm not saying polygamy is the same as polyamory, but there are a lot of places where it is perfectly acceptable for men to have multiple partners Mm. that hasn't been a thing that they have been unable to do. And if you look at the way that society has always kind of tried to control certain people, I do think that, I do think that it's kind of, to me, I kind of compare it to being non-binary. I, I don't think that I am, I'm not trying to make it into an oppression Olympics or who's, who's the most oppressed. I think that I face a lot of different things than people do. And I think that there's a very good argument for, you know, non-binary people being discriminated against when you talk about colonialism and you talk about how white Europeans, you know, coming and invading, invading the invading lands, basically, defining non-binary people out of existence, wiping out anyone who was two-spirit, any, you know, colonial-wise, 
there has been an erasure of those identities of mm. violence against those identities. But that is also a system that privileges me as a white person. So I can't sit here and say that me being a white non-binary person is the same in terms of oppression as as a you know a, a non-binary person of color or two-spirit person or you know anyone else it's it's very complicated and yeah. i think that when it comes to having multiple partners the people who the hammer is going to fall on are generally not the people who claim to have to be marginalized by it you mm. know people so many people in in communities because i also give advice in a lot of reddit communities and things like that they're a lot they're very worried that society is going to outcast them that their children are going to be taken away they ask questions about cps or child protective services or how does it work with children in schools when so many families that i grew up around had other adults living in the home because we didn't have the money for these nuclear two-parent families so we would have aunts and uncles and grandparents and other stuff picking us up there was no schools don't care as long as you give them a list of people to pick up mm -hmm. or if you have divorced families you have multiple step parents like that's not an obstacle if you know that if you've had those types of families and my experience at least with the cps is that you know, I've had family members who have really mistreated their children, but because there's no marks on them, the CPS hasn't done anything. Whereas in, in some places in America, the, the Child Protective Services are purposefully taking indigenous children from their homes and putting them into white homes because they make money off of it. So mm -hmm. it's like, you're worried that the CPS is gonna come in and take your children. And I just feel like, who's the CPS gonna actually target? Who are, who are the state systems gonna actually target? If somebody, is going to get in trouble for bigamy laws or any of those kind of laws that are sort of, yes, they're laws, but are they really enforced? Who, who is the hammer going to fall on? Mm -hmm. And I just don't feel like, I feel like definitely there will be people who will be punished for being polyamorous, but I don't feel like it's the, the more privilege you have in general. I feel like the less likely it is that you're going to suffer the consequences. And I feel like the, the hatred or, or any kind of stuff against polyamory, tends to be less about having multiple romantic partners and tends to be more about slut shaming and more mm. about misogyny than it is about a, a, a purposeful category of polyamory being created by an oppressor and then therefore being, you know, enacted in a state way. I'm not very wording that very well, but like, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a, an institutional thing that is happening. You know, people haven't outlawed multiple marriages because they hate polyamorous people. There, there's no, you know, I, 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 st I was a huge part, took a huge part in marriage equality ra rallies and everything when I was in the States, like as a teenager, that was a big part of the activism that I did. And I had people shout, get your hands off marriage in my face. Like, I, I know, you know, what it's like for people to consider you vile and, and people compared my mother to a child molester for who she loved like and i'm not again this isn't about oppression olympics but this is about a system Mar marginalization is about a system that is created mm -hmm. to target you and privilege other people and i just like i said i don't feel like you know marriage isn't legal between more than one person but i don't feel that that that's because people hate polyamorous people like i feel like that is about capitalism and about misogyny and about controlling women and mm -hmm. less about hating polyamorous people if that makes sense yeah i think that makes a lot of sense um and you mentioning going along to demos and stuff then makes me wonder what it sounds like your activism's taken lots of different forms and in different spheres and i just wondered if you'd be happy to to talk about how that's evolved for you yeah um so activism is 
direct action type of activism is really hard for me now because with my disorder, I don't produce cortisol, which is the stress hormone that your body makes when you're under physical stress and mental stress and things like that. doesn't mean I don't get stressed. It means that if I were to be physically injured, then I need that medicine right away. And if I don't get it, I could very well die. And my condition is so rare that I don't feel confident that if I were in a kettling situation where I was injured and I needed medical assistance, I don't really feel like I could trust the police to give that assistance if, if they arrested me yeah. or, or allow a, an ambulance to come through if I needed it. So I am very wary to participate in that because I just don't feel like I'm that useful if I'm dead. So most of what I try to do now tends to be focusing on, on community work and, you know, doing, if my friends have fundraisers, how can I help, you know, even small things. If I notice that a friend is going to a protest, then how can I help monetarily support that? If there's a big, you know, a friend of mine is organizing a big bike ride protest. So I'm lending my bike. So like they aren't big showy things and they aren't, you know, carrying banners and doing all that kind of a stuff. And I have like a lot of, a little bit of mixed feelings about the activism that I did as, as a child, like, well, as a teenager, because I do feel like it was important for me at the time, but I felt like a lot of what I was doing was trying to convince people of, of the validity of, of queer people. Mm. And I, you know, I don't know is that people shouting that in my face and me standing there actually changed anything. Yeah. Um, and obviously my, well, no, less obviously, but my, my sort of opinions about the state and, <laughs> and the effectiveness of the state have changed since I was a teenager. But, but yeah, now I focus more on trying to give community aid, mutual aid, trying to support people who are around me, try to educate where I can. I think that that's a really, really big thing that a lot of people on the left um, fail to do. Mm-hmm. I think that sometimes, understandably, our reaction to learning more about systems of oppression is to be frustrated and angry. And the biggest, biggest impact on my activism was working in a charity and multiple charities for people with a learning disability, because I had to start pushing campaigns and talking about campaigns where I would literally find out that people with a learning disability die 10 to 20 years earlier than people who don't have it simply because the doctor won't take a little bit of extra time with them simply because people don't explain things to them simply because information is not given to them in an accessible format and so I'm sitting here and I can't logically say people are dying because they're not given accessible information and then think it's acceptable to tell somebody to just go google something I, it's really, and, and I'm not saying educate people on your own oppressions, because I think that that's a lot. Um, but I do think where I am privileged, it is, it is part of my duty. If I want to change things to do my best, if someone is willing to listen, and if someone is, is making an effort and showing good faith, it is really, really important for me to get a hold of my anger and frustration with the system and not take it out on that person and actually spend the time it takes to sit there and try to explain it. I can make an effort and do my best. doesn't mean they're going to listen. You know, this isn't, there's a a really amazing book called um, 
the structure of scientific revolutions by Thomas Kuhn, I think is his name. And it talks about how scientific progress is not linear and that it's not about people just slowly accepting ideas. He said that the changes in science and he talks about, I think he talks about flat earth and then people accepting the earth is round. The changes in science he describes as, as a conversion experience that people have to be converted and have to kind of come to this new awareness of it. And that they're not as kind of highbrow and educated and, oh, we just accepted these theories, no problem because it made more sense. And mm -hmm. I think that it's the same way almost for understanding a system of oppression. People are educated and told their whole life to not accept this. It's gonna be hard for them. They're gonna be defensive. They're gonna not want to accept it. And it's, they have to make that effort. It's not just you educating them. They have to also make the effort, but you have to make the effort too. And I think that is, I think sometimes even amongst ourselves, like it's wild how we will beat each other up for stuff that we have said before. Mm -hmm. how we will knock each other down, you know, it's almost as if we're enacting our own frustrations with ourselves and the things we used to believe on other people and, and, and releasing that frustration on each other. We're replicating, you know, carceral justice systems that aren't just by excluding each other and being violent with one another and mocking one another and humiliating one another when at least, you know, I'm not saying there isn't sea lining. I'm not saying there aren't people who don't want to listen to you. And I'm not saying go talk to someone who's the quote unquote political opposite of you, because that is someone who usually wants you to die. But what I am saying is that among people who respect you and among, among a, a common community, at least try to extend people the benefit of the doubt and don't just assume and jump down their throats and, and, you know, act like they're stupid because so many of the stories that, you know, people with a learning disability told me like about how they get harassed online, about how they get kicked out of communities simply for not understanding things. And then I come back to the fact that I'm autistic and I think about how often growing up, I didn't understand a social rule and I was excluded for that because no one would explain something to me. So it's, it's that I think is a big part of what I, I try to do as well is I try to, it's frustrating. It's angry. It, like when someone says something ignorant, it's really hard not to be angry about it, but I have to try and maintain, especially if I'm, it, you know, when it comes to trans issues or things that affect me personally, then it's obviously a little bit different. But like, if, if I'm trying to be a quote unquote ally for whatever that word is worth, then I have to at least have the patience that people of color have had with me, you know? Yeah. And just taking the, that time. And I guess um, it's a real balance, isn't it? To be, to know who to give your energy to. Obviously, as you say, talking to someone who's your complete political opposite, that's going to be a real yeah. challenge. Probably don't go there. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But if it's someone who's maybe made a comment, for example, um, no, I won't use an example because I don't want to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So imagine, <laughs> I'm just thinking like, if, if someone says a comment that is, you know, oppressive to a particular group, if you feel, I guess it's in that moment, analyzing, do I have the energy right now um, yeah. to come back to that person, like whether it's with some resources, like as in, oh, this podcast is really good, or this person talks about this, you might want to go and mm -hmm. talk to them, or do I have more energy to kind of have a conversation with them? Um, mm -hmm. Do I have like a safe place to 
get out of the conversation if, yeah. if I find that it's kind of going on and escalating or becoming very personal. Um, mm-hmm. There's so much nuance, isn't there, in, in how to have those conversations. And I think being part of a marginalised identity or multiple marginalised identities, quite often it's really easy to just feel a lot of rage um, oh, yeah. because you just spend, <laughs> and you know, I, I have a lot of privilege um, mm-hmm. and I recognize that there are people who are more marginalized than I am and, you know, have, I'd imagine like would feel even more rage at having to explain constantly their varying, um, you know, intersections. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's that idea of like, how do you maintain not raging at people and mm-hmm. if you really don't feel in a place to have that conversation could you maybe like bookmark it that you might come back to it if you do have energy to talk to them or mm-hmm. um you know when to walk away it's a really hard hard balance and I, I just think I really resonated with what you said about not kind of taking out the rage that you've experienced from the system or from society on this one person that has a question or has said something a bit ignorant yeah And I know that that's hard. Like, it is a very delicate balance, and you Mm. might not always be up for it, and that's fine. But I think it's, and I want to, like, reiterate, like, especially in areas where you are privileged, you need, like, I cannot, it's no longer acceptable for me to pop off to white people for saying ignorant things. I have, like... I have to at least attempt, especially mm. if we're in a shared space where I feel like that they will be willing to listen to me because they're more willing to listen to me than people of color. I have to be willing to at least try and explain it once. Now, if they continue to be jerks then fine, you know, that's yeah. fine. But where I am privileged, it's, you know, Thomas Sankara um, says, I can't, we must never be tired of explaining. I can't remember the exact quote. It was, we must never be tired of explaining because when people understand this, they won't help, they can't help but to join us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, somebody, I know what I know. I, everybody has to start somewhere. And I know only what I know because people have had the patience to explain it to me yeah, or because absolutely. people have had the patience to sit down and say, here's an article. And I think, you know, people who were raged at me, I'm not saying that that turned me completely off of a, of a topic. And I don't think that rage is always unuseful or mm-hmm. that you always have to be nice. Cause I do think sometimes when you're angry, people will pay, pay attention, but it's just about figuring out what's the best use of your time. And how, you know, and also about as well, keeping in mind that even if you're only talking to one person and they aren't listening, there are other people who are. Mm. And, and I have gotten messages before, like from people where I've talked to a person who clearly wasn't listening to me. And I've had either messages from people who didn't experience that marginalization, who are like, actually, I learned something from this or people who have said, who did experience that marginalization and were like, I'm glad someone said something. Um, and one of my like favorite quotes and one of my favorite, like, it's not necessarily my favorite movie, but one of my favorite quotes in any movie is the, in A Bug's Life when Hopper, the, the grasshopper is talking about, you know, oh, there, he kind of does, takes out one kind of acorn, I think it is, and throws it at the other grasshopper and says, did that hurt? And the other guy says, no. And then he throws another one and then they keep going, no, no, no. And then he pulls the thing out and all of the acorns fall. And then he says, when one of them stands up, they might all stand up. And I think that that is the thing, like, if you are willing to say something at some point, then that, you never know what kind of effect that might have. So you got to try. I'm not saying always be nice to people. I'm not <laughs> saying be the, be the museum tour guide through, through, the, uh, through the museum of oppression for somebody. <laughs> 
but you have to, you know, especially where you are in a community, in communities that aren't political. Like I, I do some volunteering and have done some volunteering at a homeless shelter, washing dishes. And I've had really good productive conversations with somebody who just defined themselves as a centrist. And I said to them, like, look, all of these things now that you consider the center were once radical. Mm-hmm. All of these things, you know, like women having the right to vote, um, you know, gay people getting married, like all of these things that you now consider common sense were once considered radical ideas. So maybe think about that in terms of what's considered radical now. And, and he really was like, oh, I never thought about it that way. Having that one conversation, you know, that's just one person, but I have no idea what, you know, what that could lead to. However, the other guy who was there, you know, tried to get me to listen to a Jordan Peterson lecture. And I had a, almost an argument with him about how he was talking about how, have I ever really listened to Tommy Robinson? And I didn't know what Tommy Robinson said, so I couldn't have an argument against him. So yeah, there's some people (laughs) you can have a conversation (laughs) with and some people you can't, but where someone has a mutual respect in other communities, you know, take, take it, take a gamble at some times, but obviously always look after yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel like I could talk about this with you for so much longer because it's such yeah. an interesting subject. <laughs> um, but I also really want to um, talk about other things in your life. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I guess thinking about that, your activism has obviously taken lots of, lots of different routes, but one particularly public or two actually. So one, one stream is the writing. You're really, mm-hmm. um, it seems to me a really prolific writer online um and the other is the podcast and um we can talk about both hopefully but i'm wondering mm-hmm. which you might like to start with i think so yeah i most of what i write online um i'm i'm a writer in general i do i do write fiction as well but um that's kind of like I'm trying to go the agent route with that and so I don't have necessarily a lot of fiction available online Mm -hmm. but what I write regularly is a weekly uh, advice column and and podcast the columns are different to the uh, ones in the podcast called non-monogamy help and for that that I think sometimes it's a bit activism like whenever I talk in my column or my podcast about issues I always try to make make sure it's informed with you know, marginalization and, and with, I try to take an approach that, you know, depending on how they write to me and what they tell about, tell me about themselves, I try to be cognizant of those issues. And mm. I also try to be understanding the fact that most of the resources out there written for polyamorous people or, or people interested in non-monogamy are written by, the vast majority are written by white people, the vast majority are written by um, middle-class people, the vast majority are also written by Um, neurotypical people or people who Mm -hmm. don't have mental health issues and I've actually found that reading stuff from those people was not helpful and actually in in, it made it harder for me rather than helped me so and 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 when I talk about stuff I always try to talk about it like I'm not an expert I'm not a guru I'm not a person that has got everything figured out because I feel like that is the problem is that whenever you read stuff or even if you go in polyamory communities, I think because everyone's so focused on the idea within the wider society that open relationships don't work, people are very focused on doing good PR and trying to be like, oh, yes, I had jealousy, but I don't have it now and everything's Mm -hmm. fine. And I try to always say, I'm struggling with this. And when I, when I talk to people, I say, this is what I, I struggled with and what I still struggle with. I struggle with stuff all the time. The reason that I do the podcast and the column is because I've noticed that people have asked me specifically for help 
or said that it was helpful. And when I have written general articles about polyamory, like one I wrote called um, 13 Things I Wish I'd Learned Before um, Trying Non-Monogamy, people have said, no one's talking about this and this is really, really helpful. So that's mm -hmm. why I'm doing it. And I think that, that, I don't know, like, I don't know if I'm fighting necessarily for anything within polyamory, because again, I'm not an assimilationist. I don't have any desire. I, I'm, I'm not interested in convincing everyday people about the validity of polyamory. I'm not interested in recruiting. I'm not interested in trying to make it quote unquote mainstream, but I am interested in trying to help people understand themselves a little bit and also take away some of the stigma around having feelings um, and also just represent like, look, this is a perspective from someone who has anxiety, who has a lot of mental health struggles, who has a disability, like, which you may not find somewhere else. I'm still white and that, you know, so I don't have that perspective, but I do want to kind of represent at least where I'm coming from in a way that might be helpful for a lot of people. Yeah. And, um, something I think it's important to mention. So I asked in the um, podcast group yesterday, whether anyone had anything that they'd like me to talk about with you today. And mm -hmm. there were so many questions and a lot of them were about like the actual, for one of a better word, I guess, like nuts and bolts of non-monogamy, like how to, and what does it look like and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and whilst it would be super interesting to talk about those things, <laughs> I wanted to really signpost people to come and listen to your podcast and actually, you know, there's plenty of resources there where people can really get into um, the different areas and, and find out maybe all of the answers to their questions. And also you said that you're writing this article, um, which will be out actually by the time the podcast comes out. So maybe you could oh, just cool. say a little bit about that so people know where to, to go. Yeah, I, so I don't technically have anything that's from the for someone who is like, I want to try polyamory or non-monogamy, but I'm not sure. Uh, you know, like the 13 things I wish I'd learned before trying non-monogamy article is kind of more for people who may have already made those mistakes. Mm. So what I'm trying to put together, I do, I, in addition to kind of doing my column and my podcast, I do a lot of commenting on um, polyamorous like subreddits and things like that, where I notice that I'm typing the same things over and over again. I notice that I'm giving the same advice over and over again. Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to put together is a list of, I'm going to call it the 13 mistakes people make when trying polyamory, because there are a lot of common things people do when they first try, like, you know, making rules to stop emotion, saying, I'll only ever love you. I won't love anyone else is a big mm -hmm. thing. Um, a lot of people don't um, realize that they are, when you, when you make a monogamous relationship into a polyamorous relationship, they sort of think it's like one-upping their relationship instead of changing the very structure of it. And I think that they, they don't think about, they, sometimes they try it just because their partner wants to do it and they don't have a personal vested interest in it. And I think that always leads to a lot of problems. Um, people think, people read a lot of rose tinted things. Cause like I said, polyamorous people, you know, the big people know about open relationships, but they think they don't work. And that's always the thing. Like, how do you make it work? How do you make it work? And working is like, okay, is your relationship lasting until someone who's in it dies? And it, it's very <laughs> structured around this has to be a long-term thing in order for it to work. And it, it, so a lot of polyamorous people are pushed to kind of sell it all the time. And there's a lot of rose tinted stuff about very, a little almost borderline culty stuff. Like I've, I've sometimes been tempted to, to make like an article of like, is this a cult or is this a polyamorous article? Because <laughs> people will just be very rose tinted, like, oh, it opens you up to so much love. And like, 
yes, it, 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 I compare it a little bit to parenting. Like parenting can be really great, but there are a lot of really terrible things about it as well. So, and I think that people are almost a little bit used to talking about the, the downsides to parenting. I still think there's a big taboo in talking about regretting having your children, but people don't talk about the downsides of polyamory. And I think that that it, people don't expect that. So when they open up their relationship, they think it's just going to be opening to all these lovely things and everything's going to be great. And then the emotions sort of smack them across the face and they're not prepared for it. Um, and so that's another thing. So there are lots of like, there's 13 mistakes that I cover. There are a couple of things like, you know, um, what if, you know, dating exes or dating friends, which is, you know, a thing that people struggle with sometimes. There are a couple of things about, um, you know, can you go from, I think I've covered, can you go from cheating, um, like starting polyamory from cheating? Um, all, a lot of times um, people are interested in polyamory. Most of the time when people are interested in it, they are already in a couple. So that is, that creates a lot of issues. And generally speaking, they might be mildly interested in it and not really talk to their partner about it. And then a situation happens where they can be you know, they can have another partner or they can have another friend with benefits or something happens. And then now they're pushing it to their partner and it seems a little opportunistic. Um, but I can't really, so it's, it's kind of addressing that point of opportunism. Like, you know, what do you do if you feel like, if you feel ultra pressured by your partner, because all of a sudden this window's open for them and they want to jump through it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a, there are a couple of kind of common things. I think that for me, it's always just about helping people understand that, it is a big life decision. It is a big change. I, because my mom is gay and because I grew up hearing people tell me that they didn't agree with my mother's lifestyle, the word lifestyle has been permanently ruined for me. Yeah. So I don't like to call it a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, but it, but it is a completely way of doing different way of doing something. It, opening your relationship or being non-monogamous or being polyamorous isn't like just adding something on. It is changing the way that you do things. And so you know, having people come to an understanding of what are they, what are the bare bones, what do they need to think about um, before they give it a try is, is, I keep having to explain it over and over again. So I'm just going to put it in an article so that I can just send people there <laughs> instead yeah. of, instead of having to explain it over and over again. That sounds like a good idea. And I guess from your perspective, so, um, there's a difference between talking about like the theory of things and you know what mm -hmm. how we might overcome different things or different experiences but I'm just wondering what the experience of being uh, non-monogamous non has been like for you. Well there's a I did a podcast actually with Vice about my first experience like when I first quote-unquote tried it um, and I was basically used by a guy to cheat on somebody with which wasn't great mm -hmm. um, and it's really funny because that was a good example of why I, why the, the advice that I read and all of the resources that I read were useless mm -hmm. because for example, he, I found out that he was with this person and then I wanted to go talk to them because I wanted to, you know, meet my, what's called a, your partner's partner is called your metamor. So I wanted to meet them and, and everything. And he was like, no, 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 no. And I was like, why? And he's like, I just don't feel comfortable. Um, and now I would be like, well, I don't care. I'm going to talk to this person. Why are you hiding this person? Whereas then I was like, well, I don't want to be jealous and I don't want to be a controlling partner. So I'll respect his boundaries. And it turns out that the other person had no idea I existed. So, you know, <laughs> that hasn't been great. I think for me, um, 
the biggest thing that I get out of it, because the thing that I always tell people is you personally as an individual have to get something out of it, even if it, and it can't be that you get to keep your relationship because your relationship is completely changed now. So you're not going to be able to have that be a reason. So you personally have to get something out of it. And that is kind of like your anchor that holds you through some of the more difficult moments. And for me, the, the thing I get out of it is the fact that, you know, I'm on the ACE spectrum. I'm very introverted. And unlike people who you'll see who are just like, I have so much love to give. I don't like people. And if I meet somebody that I like and they like me back, you know, it, the joke I say is like in 18 years, precisely when the planets align ever so nicely and I managed <laughs> to find somebody that I like, I would like the, the opportunity and the freedom to pursue that. Mm -hmm. That's what I want. Initially when I started, I, I really wanted kids and I wanted this big, What's, oh, it's called kitchen table style polyamory, which the name makes me cringe so badly <laughs> because it's just, you clearly grew up around a very different kitchen table to me. If you, if you wanted your relationships to be like the kitchen table you grew up around. Yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> but that is, that it's, it's the idea of everyone living together, everyone getting along and this big, like, again, like almost culty, right? It's a bit mm. culty. So I have changed from wanting that kind of kitchen table style because I don't want really want children now that's changed. Um, well, I don't want them at all now. And I, you know, I have had a lot of bad experiences with metamors and I have also realized that it's just kind of like work. Like I don't like, I, I don't mind having friends from work, but I don't like being forced to be friends with people that I work with because if I'm forced to be around those people, and I can't like cut them out if they, you know, try something. Um, I feel really uncomfortable. It feels too much pressure on me. So mm. I don't mind meeting and talking with my metamors and my partner's partners. And I don't mind being friendly with them. But in situations where I've tried to force myself to be friends with them, it's made me so uncomfortable. So now I'm kind of like, you know, I, I like spending time alone. I'm cool with being alone. And I'm more open to kind of like how my life may look like in the future. That's fine. But what I get out of it now is definitely like I have the freedom to do what I want. Um, I have the ability to kind of decide how I want to live things and, and how I want to, how I want my life to look like. It doesn't have to follow the script of how other people's lives look like. And it just in general, like I'm not, I personally would find it a little bit, I don't know, maybe I'm a little bit too autonomous but I would find it annoying for someone else to tell me like you're not allowed to date someone else like I don't know personally I'd be like don't tell me what to do so yeah yeah and that makes me think hearing you say about um recognizing that you like autonomy and you want to be able to take time to be on your own and not have to kind of force yourself to be friends with certain people mm -hmm. um that makes me think of of how you implement self-care so not only do you have a lot of activism stuff going on you know you're having the conversations you're doing work in different spheres um and then I guess for want of a better word the possible challenges of non-monogamy where you have you know different interactions to negotiate and stuff um how do you look after yourself amongst all of that so the biggest thing that's helped me in not only polyamory but in my anxiety in general has been realizing that I have anxiety it's going to happen and it's not my fault that it happens. And I think that if you have been through a lot of traumatic situations or you have been through, you know, things where it's caused you anxiety, your brain kind of goes into a survival mode where it says, all right, we have to control this because we don't want it to happen again. 
And in, in the short term, it feels empowering because you don't feel so helpless and you don't feel like, okay, I, I, you know, I just have to sit here and deal with the, the trauma happening to me because there's nothing else I can do about it. But actually in the long term, it's really disempowering because you can't accept the theory that you can prevent something bad from happening to you without also accepting that it's your fault if bad things do happen to you. So, and, and that puts so much burden on your shoulders to prevent bad things from happening. And it's really hard to get out of the mindset of like, and a lot of people do this in polyamory and in life in general. It's like, how do I prevent this from happening? How do I treat my partner in a way where they won't leave me? Or, or you know, that's being the perfect partner has always been something that it's, it's less about other people and more about me being the best. And I have to be the best partner because then my partner will never leave me. And I've had to go, okay, if my partner falls in love with someone else and decides to not be with me anymore, outside of not, you know, not being an asshole to them, there isn't really a lot I can do to change that. I can't force someone to fall in love with me. I can't force someone to stay in love with me. I can't force anybody to do anything. And I think that overall has really helped my anxiety because understanding that, okay, I have anxiety. Having it doesn't mean that I failed in any way. Having it doesn't mean that I've, I've not been able to magically prevent it. It's just something that happens and I don't have control over that. And oddly enough, figuring out and realizing and accepting that I don't have control over things has really, really helped. I think another thing that's also really helped with self-care, two things. One is learning when to walk away from an argument and when to not participate in an argument that's just utterly a waste of my time. That has been really, really important. I'm generally quite an argumentative person. <laughs> I find it really hard not to just get like, Nah. And, you know, I can get, I have gotten in back and forth arguments where we're literally by the end, we're just going K, 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 K at each other. It's ridiculous. I, I used to have an <laughs> extension for live journal that automatically minimized all the comments because I would get into so many arguments that I would open, try to open the comment on live journal down this whole long tree and it would freeze my browser. Like I've, I have a really bad history with that. So learning when to step away. And, and when to you know, look at a massive text of paragraph responding to me about something and going, nah, I'm not going to participate yeah. in this. And knowing that I'm, I'm not, this whole thing when people are like, oh, blocking them means that they've won. So what? Take your, take your block trophy then. I don't care. <laughs> I, you know, like learning to, I haven't lost anything by not engaging. So that's a big thing. And then I also think there's another kind of, um, it's not really activism that I'm involved in, but it's a concept that I like a little bit support, which is a concept of um, what's called death positivity, which is about um, breaking down the taboos at, that we have around death in, in society and breaking down our misconceptions about death and also, you know, learning to reckon with death as a thing that will happen to us all. And because I spend so much of my life and have spent so much of my life fighting for equality, fighting for justice and liberation and all this stuff I, it's almost like death is this thing that we you know until someone horrible like elon musk figures out how to like transfer his soul to the cloud or something <laughs> you know death is something that we all have in common and so reckoning with it and thinking on it and preparing and making sure that i have a will making sure that i have you know i know my loved ones know what i want to happen with my body not being afraid to look at those options mm -hmm. um that has been really helpful for me actually because it makes me cherish the time that i have because i know it's going to end at some point i have like literally a thing on my phone that reminds me that i'm going to die like every 
um, like every like three hours, I think. Um, and that just kind of keeping that present in my mind makes me realize what kind of, you know, how to, how to devote my time better. And, yeah. and that helps a lot. So those, those things have been really, really helpful. Well, that's an amazing list. Thank you so much for sharing. I think people no will probably worries. be taking notes. <laughs> no worries. Um, and um, yeah, just about the, um, the alarm, I'm really intrigued. What does that do for you when it flashes up every three hours? Do you kind of find yourself desensitized to it or do you, does every time it remind you, okay, how am I using my time? Do I want to be doing this? So it's an app called We Croak. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> cool. <laughs> and it, it just comes up uh, it doesn't like buzz like because I don't have any buzzing on my phone because that kind of stresses me out mm. but it just says um, uh, you, just a reminder you're going to die and you, if you click it it does open there are some quotes about death that um, it, you know if you open the app then it just gives you a quote about death and sometimes the quotes are interesting sometimes they're a little bit random but I think you know I don't know if I've become desensitized to it I think that I'm still there are logistical things that are complicated in terms of organizing your own death. And it is getting harder. Like in the UK, I think the cost of death is actually rising, mm. but I think it is something that, I don't know, I, maybe I'm attracted or interested in, in the kind of the, the taboo and the things we don't talk about, but it, it does make me really think about what I'm doing and think about like, is, is, am I using the time that I have? I don't think that, because I think, especially if you're an introvert and you're kind of a hermity and you, and you don't like to, I don't like parties. Parties are really loud. Like most events are really inaccessible for me. So I do sometimes worry that I'm not living my life to the fullest. Cause I'm not like, you know, out of my head drunk every weekend and doing that <laughs> and this, that and the other. But I think it, it's about, it makes me cherish the time that I have with people that I care about and like makes me think, am I reaching out to friends? Am I talking to them? Things like that. And yeah. I think that's been really, really helpful. And actually, you know, I, I have had some experience with um, suicidal thoughts in the past and I was worried that kind of embracing this would make me kind of go back to that. But actually it's done the exact opposite for me and that, you know, if I think about how much my death is, may impact the people that I care about, and I think about all of the logistical things and the financial things, that actually makes me more appreciate my life and be more interested in, in trying to live it on a day-to-day -day basis, which is hard. Like in this panic, sort of people joking about the world ending, all sorts of things, it's hard to kind of find that. So I think that's just really helped me. It just, it just brings me back to like, what are the things that I enjoy out of life and how can I focus on that rather than focusing on everything that's tragic? Yeah, yeah, I can see how that would be really powerful. I think with, with all that in mind, it would be really cool to hear what is next for you. So um, mm -hmm. I know it sounds to me that you're working towards getting some fiction published. Mm -hmm. and, and what else? I mean, it would be awesome if I had, like, if I could make writing a full-time gig. Like, that would be really, really great. Right now, I work within the kind of digital sphere. I've worked in charity for the last eight or nine years. I'm hoping to move towards uh, to a for-profit job, which may sound negative, but I'm actually... I think I'm feeling a little bit disillusioned with the idea that me being in a charity is innately improving the world. Um, mm -hmm. Cause I do feel like the, the activism that I do and I, you know, whether or not it's called activism, just the day-to-day -day stuff that I do to try and help people in my community just feels a lot more empowering than any of the work that I've ever done in a charity. So I think what's next for me is I always, I always want to try and, and stay aware of people in my community who need help and boost where I can. 
I would really, really like to have a more regular volunteering place to physically go to. That's kind of hard sometimes. People um, can, especially people who are in small organizations that actually need the help, uh, they don't always communicate <laughs> very well about like, oh, can I come in today? Oh, no one's answering the phone. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of hard. So I mm. would, I would like to have um, specifically like helping people who are homeless and, and who don't have a home is a big part of a focus for me because there are so many homeless queer people as well. And because um, it's just, it's just something that I feel particularly, I feel like that's a basic thing, like people not having a home. There's so many problems that stem for that. And I'm not saying that other issues aren't important, but that's something yeah. that I really care about. Mm -hmm. So finding something to do on the regular would be really, really good. I think also, you know, I'll keep, I, I would like to keep the, the podcast and column going and, and maybe hopefully, you know, if I got enough Patreon supporters and that could be my full-time job, that would still be stressful because I've been self-employed before and that's stressful um, just from the filing taxes sort of thing and being having also having dyscalculia and mixing my numbers. So that's not great, but you know, it, just having writing being my full-time job would be a great thing. And um, yeah, I think that that would be, that's kind of where, I would like to be headed in the future. I think at one point I might consider writing a book about non-monogamy mm -hmm. and, and seeing where that goes. I think the, th the thing that I worry about is that I, I've written a lot of things and, and I wrote it about, uh, about more than just non-monogamy. My non-monogamy stuff seems to do better, which is kind of why I've, I've focused more of my efforts on that rather than, you know, writings I write about white privilege or other sort of stuff that doesn't tend to do as well. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but I, I, I guess like I, there is a kind of worry in the back of my head of like, what if my nonfiction stuff is way better than any of my fiction stuff? I mean, I guess that's not the end of the world, but I don't know. I'm still a little bit hesitant about writing a book because so many of the books out there are by white people. And I know that I do offer a little bit of a different perspective by being disabled and being queer and, and that kind of a thing. But I don't know. I guess it's, it's still kind of a thing I'm tossing over in my head. Like, mm -hmm. should I, how do I write this? is is it is it going to be helpful i mean the messages sometimes i get messages from people that thank me for writing the way that i do and that's really encouraging so i i i do think people are getting things out of the things that i write um but i always kind of you know check my ambitions a little bit with regards to that but yeah that's kind of where i'm at cool and um as you know, whenever I have a guest on, i ask them to um share something that they're really enjoying at the moment and i just wondered if there's anything you'd like to share so I'm going to suggest something. And if this isn't what you had in mind, um, then that's absolutely okay. I can, you can cut it out and, and I can mention something else. No, I'm sure it's great. In my personal experience of, of being queer, and this is less of a thing that I'm enjoying, um, but in my personal experience of being queer, I found a bit of a catch 22 with myself in that I would say to myself, well, you're not really queer um, because you haven't had any relationships with women. And but even though obviously I never put that kind of a restriction on myself or anything else, I would constantly criticize myself with that. And when I actually found women that I was into, it would prevent me from talking to them or prevent me from engaging with them because there's also this kind of 
cultural myth within the queer community of the straight woman who ruins the lesbian's experience and breaks the lesbian's heart by leading her on. And then, you know, and that really, really affected me and really, really made me feel like I, you know, I was sort of stuck. Like there wasn't anything I could do. I just so happened to be supportive and not like heavily involved, but supportive of um, Swarm, which is a really awesome organization. The Swarm Collective um, is about fighting for sex worker rights and decriminalization in the UK. And I knew someone through that who was a sex worker. And I had quite a, a couple of other friends who were queer sex workers. And I think that if you are struggling with this concept, you should consider talking to queer sex workers and hiring a queer sex worker because because I hired that person and and they were it made the situation a hell of a lot less pressured for me because they were a professional I knew that they didn't you know I could I could say I'm uncomfortable with this and they wouldn't be personally offended I felt really free to be able to try different things and and not be okay with it without hurting somebody and I do really think that it was really, really helpful for me. And if I hadn't had that experience, I think, you know, I would have kind of still be stuck in amber a bit and still be like, oh, I can't, I'm not really gay or not really queer enough unless I have this experience. Um, and that just really, really helped me. And yeah, this, it, I think there are a lot of people on the left who support sex work, but they, you know, they don't necessarily consider the, op the possibility of being a client. And it is kind of difficult sometimes, like, you know, the people who tend to be clients have a lot more money than most queer people do. And so that's a thing. But there are queer sex workers out there who understand and, and might have adjustable rates for other queer people. And they will be really, really supportive and really, really understanding of your boundaries. I also have been through, you know, sexual abuse. So there are a lot of kind of triggers and traumas and things that I have. And the sex worker that I hired was just so understanding of everything. And it was just a, a very non-pressurized environment where I felt like I could have some experiences and, you know, basically figure it out or prove to myself that I'm really queer um, <laughs> in a safe way. And I think um, that is something that people should consider. Like if you're stuck in that place, I think that if you want to hire a sex worker, you should at least try your best to understand the issues that sex workers face where you are locally and at least try to give a shit. Mm -hmm. um, Swarm has a lot of resources about that. But yeah, I think if you're stuck in that, um, that has kind of like been one of the most useful things that's really, really helped me. And there are queer sex workers out there. There are people who can be supportive of you in that situation and can really really help you out and I don't regret it I think it was an awesome decision and it's made me feel since then I have like chatted people up who are girls and non-binary people and other queers and also I felt a lot freer to just go okay um I know that I don't have to prove anything to anyone and maybe I could have you know done some internal work and been more okay with it but it was just such a great experience and so I do really, really recommend that, especially to any, to anyone who's feeling in that kind of stuck in that situation and, and wants to kind of have an experience, but is just really, really afraid of this kind of, you know, secret straight woman. Um, even though I'm non-binary, I still <laughs> kind of fear being the straight woman that ruins, breaks lesbian's heart. I yeah. think that can, that can be really helpful. 
Yeah, I think that's an excellent recommendation. Probably the best one we've had so far. So thank you very much for sharing. (laughs) Yeah, that's really cool. Um, Yeah, so I mean... Oh, <laughs> thank you so much for doing it. I've, I feel like there's been so much that's come up that in itself could be an episode of a podcast. Um, and it's been really great chatting to you. And I'm sure everyone listening to this will feel the same. So thanks for taking the time to do it. Thank you. I really appreciate being on. <laughs> so um, if anyone wants to follow your work, they should definitely come and check out your podcast. Um, I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, mm-hmm. Also with the article that you talked about, the 13 most common mistakes that you see people making with non-monogamy. Mm-hmm. Um, and where else should people find you? Yeah, I think I think mainly so non-monogamy help. I think nonmonogamyhelp.com should work to get to it, but you could also search for it. Um, the article that I talked about, I'll post on that as well. Uh, I should be able to share it on my publication. Um, I think I'm generally on Twitter at uh, their name is Lola. I'm having to like disengage Twitter a little bit because mm. the like pandemic talk right now is really stressing me out. Yeah. Um, and I do have like, as a fair warning, like, so I can operate Twitter as a trans person in the UK, I have like quite an extensive block list. And sometimes I will be blocking people that I don't mean to, because I'll just go to like really horrible anti-trans accounts and just block everyone who's following them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes trans people follow them to keep an eye on them and whatnot. So if I've blocked you, it's like, it's no offense. Um, I just, I really lock down my account because I'm, I don't want to deal with being, you know, doxxed or dealing with some of the things that people do. And I sometimes do change my name um, for safety reasons that I, yeah, I don't want to get into, but um, generally you can find me on there. There's also an email, nonmonogamyhelp at gmail.com, which people can send questions to if they want. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like mostly where, where they can find my stuff, generally speaking. Amazing. Thank you so much, Lola. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed Lola's episode. I honestly felt like I could ask so many questions and talk to them for such a long time because yeah they were super interesting and do be sure to go and check out some of Lola's work all of the links will be in the show notes as usual and that is the end of the series I'm thinking of putting together a few kind of one-off episodes in between now and when series two comes up. So look out for those. And if there's anyone that you would like me to interview for series two, please do let me know and either uh, get in touch with me and recommend who it is that you think I should speak to, or even better, tell the person that they should definitely be on Queers & Co. And then when I contact them, they'll be prepared and they'll be interested. Um... Yeah, I'm really looking forward to lining up some more amazing guests for the next series. And I also just wanted to say thank you to you for listening and for making me realise that it's not just me recording something in my bedroom that maybe one person is going to listen to. Um, It's actually getting out to people and a lot more people than I ever expected. So please do keep listening and um, let anyone else that you think would enjoy the podcast know about it. Thank you and keep safe and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.